You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here, and welcome to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is a colleague who has a, a lot to say, almost as much as me, uh, Mr. Thomas Bayad. Hey, Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey, hi, Ariel. Very, very glad to be here with you. So you and I have probably had some of the most, what I call, high-level philosophical conversations about the production, sale, marketing, whatnot of Swiss watches. Um do you get to have conversations like that with everyone or is this a special treat? Because I have to say, you are, at least for me, uh, a little bit rare amongst your colleagues in that we sort of have these, you know, like I said, intellectual conversations. Do you get to have those all the time? Well, honestly, there are people who are happy to speak and there are people happy to listen. You have both uh, both virtue that you are very, uh, you know, open to discuss about the, the real problematics and, and I must admit yeah, that we are very generous here at giving advices, but when it comes to very touchy points, uh, people are many times reluctant to speak. And then probably that's why you and I have great conversation, because we're both happy to, to tell us exactly things how they are. And uh, no, it doesn't happen all the time, though people know me for being very direct and honest. And, and that's why many people seek conversation. But in many cases, it's more me speaking than them because they just want to... <laughs> <laughs> not really uh, get into the get into the troubles. I was thinking about two words that I could use to describe sort of preeminent parts of your personality, at least when it comes to you know your position in the watch industry. And the words that came to mind were teacher and activist. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. In fact, it could uh, it could pretty much stick to my profile. Teacher, because I yeah I like to explain what I'm doing. An activist, because you know words are words, but I think it only makes sense if you if you bring them down to something concrete. Because if it stays words, uh, then it's just uh, win. Uh, it's good when when things are implemented because then you can you can measure whether they works or not. One of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, and I think is still a relevant issue, is that there isn't much of a formal education system in Switzerland to make you a watch brand entrepreneur or a manager. There are watchmaking schools and all types of technical certifications, but there isn't really much out there to make you a, a, a brand manager or, or like yourself, an entrepreneur. In my own way, I'm an entrepreneur. Because I think that so much of the time, you know, what you and I should be doing is like running college level classes about this. Are there other people that say the same thing? Because I think the bigger context here is watches don't just come out of nowhere. All these countries everywhere is like, oh, we can make luxury watches do, and yet they don't. There's something about what happens in Switzerland that allows for the production of, of watches. So is there any movement since we last spoke about there being more of a formal educational approach to making people that run to run and make watch brands? Well, you know, it, it's not just Las Vegas. It's Switzerland. What happens in Switzerland stays in Switzerland usually. Um, and we are anyway, by culture, we're not very, you know, we're, we're kind of discreet. We like to do things. We don't really like to voice it out. And, and but there is uh, a lot of knowledge going around, but usually it's kept within the brands and within the group. So they have a lot, they have extensive trainings, et cetera, et cetera. But usually it's, it's about what we know 
better to do in Switzerland, it's about the watch itself. It means the production. It means all what, what goes around improving the processes of, of building those watches, those beauties. It's not so much about how to market them, though you still find a lot of, a lot of course around about marketing, etc. But when it comes to distribution and sales, which is my expertise, look, Ariel, this is what brings in the money. Produ producing a watch and promoting it are ways to spend money. It's an investment. But when it comes to how to earn money, of course, you find less recipes because this is what, what companies keep for themselves. So it's true in that case, we don't really like to give our, our best recipe on what, what works for us. So with, with the, the academy, I've created the Watch Trade Academy. We are trying to get into these hidden things the things that that company usually don't speak about, but in general, you know, we don't we don't really voice out things to the medias like you are, etc. But remember, when we say Swiss watch making is uh, is about Switzerland, in fact, it's not about Switzerland. It's about very tiny parts in Switzerland, very tiny places, regions that more or less um, are within miles. Uh, you know, probably Los Angeles era covers would cover what is the watchmaking in Switzerland by far. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. All right. So let, let's go back to this notion of discretion. Why? Why is because, again, it, it manifests itself in everything from the design to how they're sold and the things you said. What is it? You know, wh where does Swiss discretion come from? Not all, some cultures have it, some don't. What are the sort of sources of this? Well, I have some some element of, of answers. And, and first, uh, you know, Switzerland, before sometimes being known for watches, what you usually hear in, the, in American movies when it comes to Switzerland, it's about it's about banks. And bank is about secrecy. It's true. We're discreet with the money. And, and probably it's also because of our history. You know, we are surrounded by a lot of countries, a lot of very powerful countries in Europe. And Europe was the center for thousands of years uh, of, of the, the you know, civilization. So we have France, we have Germany, we have Italy around. And these big countries are very strong, uh, strong powers. So we used to do our own cookings within Switzerland and try to be discreet so that these empires would not invade us. So we always used to be, you know, very accommodant and we keep things for ourselves. And probably you find this as well in the religion. Uh, many places that do watchmaking uh, are Protestant, like the state of Neuchâtel, where I'm speaking from today, or Geneva. Uh, they are Protestant. What does it mean? Protestant means that we refuse the, the, the abundance and the, the extravagance of the church in the in the in the 15th 16th century 17th century and we said like forget about those money forget about the jury forget about plantation we we directly speak to god we directly do things ourselves so it's between us and god and we don't involve a lot of people around like priests etc so so this is again this is fascinating this is something that i've slowly had to pick on because i want everyone to know when you know, I've been to Switzerland countless times and I can't wait to go back after the pandemic, but no one taught me any of these things that Thomas is talking about, especially when it came to the watch industry. And it's true that this this um, this particular sort of r religious ideology that that is 
quite old, several hundred years old now, still has a big impact on watches made today. It's not saying that the pe people are necessarily religious, but there's these values that came from Switzerland's own form of religious rebellion <laughs> that still has a big impact on watches, right? But it does shape the mentality. Look, I'm, I'm not religious at all, to be, uh, to, be, uh, to be direct. But still, I grew up in La Chaux-de-Fonds. I grew up in, in this environment, in the people. And you can feel that, yes, in, in fact, we don't, we don't like boasting. We don't like pretending. We like things as they are. We are humbles. And, and, and we, we all know each other. So you can't really, uh, you can't really pretend of doing things when they're not. So it's true. It's, it's totally within the mentality. Like, you know, we, we, we are like this. And if, if we make good watches, you know, we're not pretending that we make things better than others because in other culture, they know exactly how to do the same thing as us. You have all these, these, uh, these um, virtues as well in other countries. But what we excel in is constants. We are not only capable to make one perfect watch, we're capable to make the same perfect watch millions of times throughout decades. And this is what characterizes as well the Swiss mentality is that we, we, don't, we don't do watch. We like watches. This is part of us and this is part of the culture. And, and it's true, we do things, we don't voice it out, we keep it. And, and in fact, Ariel, this has been for a lot of time a big issue. The region I come from, from the Jura, we had a problem is that we knew exactly and perfectly how to make watches, but we didn't know how to sell them. This is why Geneva came and, and, and we were bringing, doing the watches in the Jura, and we were bringing them to Geneva to sell them because we were unable to promote ourselves and to sell them. And, and what people should know is that Geneva was like the international hub. That's where people from other countries would come exactly. to buy the watches. So Switzerland has this history of producing, but always relying on someone to come to them and saying, what you got, I want to buy it to move it and sell it in, in my market. And there are, there are those entrepreneurs from Switzerland historically that have gone off and done things like, you know, people like Jacques Edro were, were sort of famous uh, original examples of this that would go off themselves and sell. But for the most part, the Swiss watch industry was, was primarily focused on making watches and relied on others to sell them locally in other parts of the world. Correct? True, but, but if, you, if you see, Swiss people are one of the population that most travel in the world. So we like to travel, as, but, but funnily, we, are not, we don't have a colonial history. So we do travel, but every time we go to countries, we do respect the, the, the history and countries' cultures. We don't try to colonize the countries, and that's a different, so uh, for instance. So here's countries. a question, and this especially has historically been the case with a lot of, um, let's say, Chinese tourists, and the idea is, you go to Switzerland, which is a very popular destination for Chinese tourists. And one of the things to do is, you know, you buy a souvenir from the place you're going. And when you go to Switzerland, the good news is there's lots of souvenirs. The bad news is it's really expensive. So do Swiss people do the same thing when they travel? They're like, well, we expect people to buy the really expensive souvenirs in our country. Do they go and buy like really expensive souvenirs in other countries? Oh, not so much. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> No, you have to admit, in, in terms of having a nice souvenir, a Swiss watch, you know, is definitely more of an investment than maybe a nice piece of art or sort of a trinket off the street, yeah, right? Yeah, no, but we do, we do, we do buy art as well a lot. Uh, we we love culture in Switzerland. This is something very developed. But it's true. I, I have never 
been told or seen that um, that traveling is a destination for shopping uh, because basically you know we have what we what we need here we do like shopping when we go abroad because usually uh, things cost a bit more in Switzerland so we, we tend to think it's less expensive than it is in other countries but we travel more for culture than for shopping as Chinese do for instance when they travel it's it's a bit more for shopping than oh, I, can, I can say for culture of course they want to discover other countries but the, the, it's not a destination just for shopping. That's my personal view of feeling, at least. Well, don't say that to Lucerne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lucerne has to remain a destination. Lucerne has other virtues, but without shopping, you know, Lucerne has to stay Lucerne, right? Yeah, but we don't we don't really go to Lucerne, uh, Swiss people, to uh, to visit or to shop. But, oh, but that's we true. go that's to true. museums. There are they have amazing museums, and then we go, of course, to the Alps. Where when we go. It's for skiing, it's for doing activities. No, I just think it's funny because this this is a city which is a small, very historical city that is very densely populated with watch stores because at least historically it's had a lot of tourists there. So it's just, it's kind of interesting that it's sort of um, Switzerland's own kind of flavor of like a uh, like a shopping, uh, what they would call in other places like a tourist trap. Not that it's a trap, but like it's very heavily commercialized and it's, it's it's as close as Switzerland can get to quote unquote not being discreet. Yeah, about but it. It, it, it's the perfect Swiss picture. It's true. It's true. And it, yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah, they they have. Let's say they, they. You know, we're not stupid in Switzerland. We are prepared to receive you <laughs> to send you something. Of course. Now we talked about you being a teacher and an activist, and as an activist, you have very altruistically tried to bring a lot of the watch brand forces into sort of a modern era and help expose a lot of the weaknesses. Like you said, we're, we're really good at making a watch, but we're not necessarily good at, at, at sort of selling watches. And you obviously had this from a very young age. And of course, very early on, you probably felt resistance, you know, to this. What was your, some of your first feelings when you were trying to sort of help bring an, an industry that you grew up in into the modern era help improve everything, essentially help things be more stable, more profitable, yet you were met with so much resistance. What kind of emotion, especially when you were younger, did you first have in, in regard to the situation? Um, look, I've always considered that uh, we are one industry in Switzerland. And, and if we do compete with each other, it's with one goal, is that if you're better than me, I have to be better than you. And ultimately, it's the, all, it's, it's the industry that wins. And this is really what animates my, 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 you know, all my projects and the fact that we, in the end, we are sharing something greater than just the brand we're working with. And if you see, you know, most of the people I know, they work sometimes for one brand and then for another brand. So, yes, I feel a bit deceived when I see sometimes you know, the, the, the mentality, and especially right now that things are getting a bit tougher, it's rather everyone for itself. And, and, and I think that's, that's wrong because we are one industry and we have to defend one industry. But what I felt most bitter is that I was given, sometimes three years ago, uh, I was given a mandate from a foundation to work on a concept that would upgrade the Swiss made and, uh, and I've worked out a concept which I think was, was extremely interesting for small independent companies, watch brands, Swiss made, 
Well, you have to explain, what does that mean, upgrade Swiss made? It sounds cute, but like, what yeah, does that it mean? Yeah, that Swiss made just qualifies for production uh, things. It's 60% of the value of a watch that should be produced in Switzerland with the movement, assembling, and quality control uh, being done here in Switzerland. So sometimes it's, it's good, but sometimes it's vague, or some brands are pretty much taking advantage of this by doing things at the limit of what we call the Swiss made. So we wanted to highlight the origin. We wanted to highlight um, the, you know, the fact that those brands were family-driven companies, that they would add a bit more soul to just some 100 grams or 50 grams of steel and, and, and mechanical. So this is like a marketing thing. How do, you, how do you put a little bit more energy and meaning into what Swiss made means? Not how you actually change the parameters because, because of what you would, qualifies. You would, you would certify the way companies works because we know companies here so we would be rather pushing or promoting the fact that these are family driven these are independence company they're they're located here in switzerland because you have i won't name any companies but you have a lot of companies that are not swiss at all maybe they came once to switzerland but that puts switzerland everywhere in their conversation and they put branding movies like the trains in the CERN or in Interlaken, et cetera, et cetera, so that the public thinks that it's Swiss, but it's it's not. <laughs> and and so we wanted to highlight that it's not just about the timepiece itself, it's about this little add of soul that we put in our watches and in the way we do produce things. And I and I planned something okay. that was called Certificat des Horlogers Indépendants, Independent Watchmaker Certificate. And it would involve the customer in a journey, it bring the customer into a journey in the Swiss watchmaking know-how. And I and I, you know, I did something which I think was good, that it was very interactive, it was very uh, forward-thinking in terms of digital, et cetera, et cetera. And it would request companies to invest ten thousand dollars to be part of this and mutualizing a lot of costs. We would bring something great together so that the public could have this little additional additional thing to just the Swiss made. And I went around three years ago and I visited 26 companies, the one that opened the door at least, so it wasn't 26. And I was so surprised and so sad to see that in the end, only two companies were ready to spend $10,000 into securing something that would, you know, that would help the whole the whole industry. And, and, and most people would say, look, I don't really care. And, and the others would say, how do you think I could ever help my competitors by doing something within the same association and, and that some customers would see other competitors' name? So, so wait a minute. So there's three reactions you had. One, that's too much money. Yeah, but that's Two, an excuse. Come on. Uh, for a company. I might... Well, no, no, of course. I'm just, I'm just saying, let's, let's look at what the sort of, it's, it's a cultural indicator to understand. There's different types of things they could say. They could say, this sounds great, but we don't know you. They let you come in. They give you the respect to listen, but then their concerns were, um, we don't want to pay anything. We don't want to help the competition because we feel like they're going to eat our lunch. And then it sounds like the last thing they said is, we don't want to change if we feel like there isn't necessarily like a good reason. Yeah. And then it was involving some, some, pretty innovative digital things that not everybody would understand. And, um, but the result is this, I mean, it's the logic of the white beer on the, on the, how do you call it on the pole, North pole, you know, they 
sometimes this is really what I felt. They prefer wait so that the other beer dies so that they can eat their fish uh, and think that at short term it would go better for them instead of understanding that the whole thing is melting <laughs> and that everybody will end up in the water. And look, guys, look at Apple Watch. It's not a joke. And 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 this is this, no, you're, this you're is right. what we should together be facing instead of fighting between one another. But guess what? Nobody cares. And and that that was really a shock for me to understand and to see that in the end, it's it's pretty much a selfish industry. And that's very uh, that's very sad. So yes, at that time I thought, you know what? <laughs> do do your stuff. I'll do mine stuff. And then we see. <laughs> but, but the mentality carries on. It's it's very individualistic. That's sad. So here's my here's my analysis of that. And again, I thank you for sharing that story. And I'm sorry about the frustration. You obviously were trying to do a good thing and it was discouraging. Don't get me wrong. I've been there many times. As a non-Swiss person, this is her, sort of how I see the situation. Each Swiss watch brand person essentially is like a loan officer at a bank. And every single time you want them to do anything, it's almost like pitching them a loan. And the idea is, if I give you this money, what's the likelihood that your idea is going to be good enough to give me a return, right? Everybody is totally risk averse. And so every single time you give them some idea, their question is almost as though they're sitting in the shoes of a loan officer. Like, oh, is this, is this, a, is this a very safe idea? In order for me to get my money back, this better be a really safe idea. And safe ideas are ones that have already happened before and someone else has tried and has success. You want me to do something new? No, that's too risky for this bank. So it's kind of like they're all run like really conservative bank loan officers, right? But see, what's interesting here, let's point out what's interesting. It is highlighting something very crucial. It's a business. And this is the, the non-romantic part nobody really wants to speak about. That's the elephant in the room. Is that it's, it's just an industry. And, and, and what, what does it mean? It means that sales and turnover is the kerosene of a plane flying. You, you, you cut it, you just crash. It's like breathing for you and me. So we, we are in an industry where everybody pretends that they don't need to breathe, but they do. And it's a lot in, in, intimately about the money. And this is why exactly and precisely I've started to think about, you know, what, what is really the money? How do the company get the money? And basically, uh, you have one flow that brings in the money, whereas all other flows or departments spend the money. What brings in the money is the sales and the vector of sales is distribution. So this is where I started to thought to think about, you know, so how, how do we go around that, that industry? If everybody's thinking about the PL, profit and loss in the end, then I have to adapt, adjust my method, my methodology to bring something to the companies that would that would improve their revenue stream. Because in the end, it was about this. It was about securing a business, and you can't blame companies for that because I, you know, like do me a favor, Ariel, stop breathing, you die. So you can ask the companies to stop breathing. So you have to find So let's back up. So you started by taking your ideas, again, as someone that came from the Swiss watch industry, was born into it, you know, multi-generation Swiss watch industry, went to other, went to brands that you had nothing, no, no intention other than help. They sort of rebuffed your advances. 
And then you eventually sort of went their route, which was to sort of do your own thing. But still, there was a part of you that says, I want to work with them and I want to help them. What, why do you think that is? Why do you think it is, even though you're sort of doing your own thing with the Bayad brand and, of course, some of the other you know, businesses you have related to the watch industry, what, what is it about helping the others and working with them that still draws you so well, strongly? I'm not, I'm not pretending to help, let's say. Uh, I'm pretending to to play collective. I think playing soccer alone is a bit boring. So it's always better to play in team. And ultimately, right. look, what, what I what I realized is, is an evidence, which me as a specialist of sales, I've done this for uh, one, two decades all over the world and a lot in the States too, is an evidence that we were at the edge of a huge paradigm shift. We, we were always, and we have written tons of books about the, the quartz crisis in the 70s that has completely reshaped the Swiss watch industry. We almost died as an industry in the 70s, and we were re, we have reinvented ourselves. And, and this was about the product itself, the heart of the product, which is the movement from mechanical it came to be quartz. My belief is that it's not only or just about the watch itself, it's about selling the watch. Because if you produce a watch, you produce stock. And stock is, sorry to say, as a financial analysis, it's toxic for a company. It's only good if you manage to sell them. So ultimately, this industry is about selling watches. And the way we sell watches today has changed. It's a different world. And, and I was trying to explain that we should cope with digital but not as a marketing gimmick, as we usually hear uh, in the industry today. It's all uh, seen through the goggles, Google's goggles, as you say, uh, of yeah, goggles, goggles, market. But we don't have a marketing <laughs> issue. Look, when 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 COVID hits, it's us. It's not just about marketing. It's about stores being closed. So, <laughs> you know, you can't sell if you only sell through stores. So it's a, it's a distribution issue that the industry has. And believe it or not, the COVID is just a fast forward. The, the problem, the issue was there, and it just acted as, as an accelerator of tendency. So look, three, four years ago, I just, I just look at the evidence, which is an equation. Profit is margin times quantity, period. And I've, I've spent 15 years... Of my, of my life, trying to optimize those two parameters. I've tried to sell more watches and to sell them better. But as an evidence, we as an industry in Switzerland are, are losing quantities and big time accelerated in, 19, in 20, 2019 and not, not to mention 2020. So if you have one parameter of the equation that declines, you have to improve the other to, to at least stay at the same level of profit. So let, let, let's back up, because I want to make sure that the listeners sort of really with, with us here, because this is some dense stuff related to some you know deep nuances of the watch industry. And we're talking about the, the, the sort of uh, shift towards digital for watch brands, the resistance, and what that actually means. And what I think is important is that you said something that, you know, the, the internet isn't a marketing gimmick. Um, but the bigger question I want to ask, and this is something you alluded to a moment ago, is that the less watches are being sold around the world, which we know the fashion watch industry is, is in a lot of parts going away. Uh, 
uh, distribution through department stores that buy in large quantities per an order. Um, that's, at least for now, really kind of changed. I think that'll come back in, in digital form later, but that's that doesn't really exist the same way it did a long time ago. You know, the internet can help, but what can the internet do about some of these core issues, which is the Swiss watch industry needs to contend with just sort of lower demand. There's still going to be demand around the world, but at least compared to maybe 10 years ago, less demand. What are people saying is the solution well, to that? Look, in the end, customer is the king. We always know this. So basically, you and I, as a customer, will purchase how we wish. And, and it happens that more and more people are purchasing online. Right. This is, this is good. But it's not just about finding the customer where they are and selling them where they are. Because selling online as a customer, purchasing online, means or allows a huge shift into the relation between brands and customers. Look, I, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, I teach in my academy, as you know, and I have a lot of entrepreneurs that come because they have either an ID of a watch or a marketing ID, so product or marketing. And they love your ID and they think it's going to sell okay. by itself, et cetera, et cetera. And I ask them always at the beginning, who is your customer? So they describe the typical 30 to 50 years old customer, blah, 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 et cetera. And they describe the end consumer, the end customer. And I tell them, look, guys, right, but this is not in the traditional way to sell watches, your customer. Your customer is a distributor, is a retailer, is an agent. And they have a complete other scanning of your product than the end consumer would do. So we as an industry used to sell uh, watches in huge quantities to intermediaries those intermediaries bringing the watch close to you and I as a customer a few miles away from your home. This is how it worked for centuries. And this is how the traditional distribution was built. Now, what if a new channel opens? Look, the, the, the Panama Strait, the Panama Channel, uh, allowed the, allowed the, yeah, the, Panama the, the boat to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean in two days. What, what does it mean? It means that before this, you had to go through the Magellan Strait down to Chile, would take weeks, a lot of risk, etc., to go up and, 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 and follow your route maybe to, to, uh, to Asia, etc., etc. So when the Panama Canal opened, it's a new route, commercial route, that allows to have a big competitive advantage. And this is exactly what the, the, what the digital channel is doing to the industry. But since two decades, everything related to digital was linked to marketing. And, and this is good because it allowed the brands to fine-tune much more, know their customer, communicate with their customers. And, and then here came the famous omni-channel, which, which, is, which is great when it comes to information because information multiplies when you divide it. You hear better in stereo than mono. But now... When it comes to distribution, it's reverse. And this is the big mistake that I'm hearing lately. All the marketing gurus that start to speak about omnichannel when it comes to distribution. Stop! Omnichannel distribution, information multiplies when you divide it, but sales channel uh, divide when you multiply them. They come into competition. And this is exactly what's coming up. So let, let me explain it again. I, I agree with you. So omnichannel 
it's a little sort of insider, but the idea of omnichannel is that a watch brand should sell through as many channels as possible at the same time, meaning online, through third-party retailers, direct. And the idea is that the, you know, the more opportunities you potentially have to sell, the better. But what Thomas is saying, what I agree with that I've said many times is on the internet doesn't make sense. You don't need 600 websites to sell your stuff because there are people, you know, with Google only has 10 results. So essentially, there needs to be a smaller number of internet distribution and more of a strategy behind a few, a few that rather than just sort of saying, anybody that wants to buy or watch wholesale, great, whatever they want to do with it, we don't care. Yeah, but, but the, the, the big difference is that internet, Google reaches you on your, on your desktop whenever you're in Los Angeles or like me in Neuchâtel. It, there is no border uh, anymore. So it's one new country that opens that, that covers basically 8 billion uh, people that can directly purchase from their phone or, or computer. So, But there's a, there's, there is a border. And I, I want to stop you there because I think it's important. You're right. Anyone has access to it. But look, the Internet, and you'll admit this, especially, you know, as we both have kids trying to teach them. The Internet has more information available than any one brain can handle. Yet people today are kind of lazy about learning, meaning just because there's so much information out there doesn't mean you're able to access it, you know what to look for, you can know what to believe. In the in, in, internet distribution is really about getting the information to the consumer, not it being available. So with travel and real world distribution, it was about walking by a store, walking by something. On the internet, you have the exact same issue where you still need to get in front of the consumer. And I would argue that's actually no easier today. It actually might be harder today than it was yesterday. Yes, and there you highlight something very, very important is the difference between two different business models that that currently are competing, the traditional sales and the digital sales. And I'll come back to that. But what it means in terms of routes for commercial routes, it means that brands now have multiple channels available to reach different customers. And, and there is the problem is that when I, as a brand, communicate to my customers, but my customers still have to go to the stores to purchase, it's okay. Because I'm helping my customers as a brand, which are the distributors and the retailers, to make their business. But when I'm starting to sell directly to them, I'm stealing the customer of my customer. And there is the problem. And this is why, you know, the technology was available for, for at least one decade to sell directly to end consumers. Why brands were not doing this? Because it's too risky. You upset your main revenue stream, which means your intermediary, your wholesaler network, if you start to steal the customers from them. And, and, and there is the big issue, the big question we have to solve today. How can brands, uh, let's say, sell directly or, or, or go still through the, through the traditional network? Yeah, you know, here's the thing, but this is where there's two parts of the argument. You're on the side of the brands, not really like it's an oppositional thing, but you're thinking, how do you make enough money to survive, to build a business, for it to be profitable, and for us to continue making watches? The consumer has a slightly different perspective, and they want a certain type of experience. And we've done surveys, and I found that people almost unequivocally prefer buying watches from third-party retailers in a sort of multi-brand environment where they get to browse and see other things versus buying directly from a brand. We know that's not necessarily what happens. They buy directly from brands, but it goes against sort of what consumers prefer. I mean, brands must realize this. Absolutely. And it's sort of interesting I, I to say, how do you take, you know what I mean? How do you take what we have now and move it maybe a little bit in that direction? We all experience exactly the same thing since one year. 
you know, phone calls, uh, Zoom, etc. It's good, but it never replaces true interactions and, and, and human meeting and emotions and physical interactions. But so here, here we are. We have today two models that are available, digital sales and traditional sales. What, what is traditional sales? It's a great user experience. You go to a store, a place where, you know, you're pleased to go, you're received by someone who is trained to give you information and to make you feel special, to offer you a coffee. Hospitality. Yeah, hospitality. And you have a physical contact with the timepiece itself. But this commodity costs a lot of money. Basically, two-thirds of the product goes into that commodity. When you buy a watch at $1,000, $650 goes into your commodity to go to that store. $350 are for the watch itself, or let's say the company's turnover. The watch itself, it's even less. And, and then, so your this model, this historical model, is very good in terms of UX, but very costly. The other model, the competitive model of digital sales is exactly reverse. It's extremely interesting in terms of margin, but very poor in terms of emotion and physical interaction. It's as cool as a pixel. So wait, wait, let, me, let me stop you here because, again, I, I, I want to sort of break it up with a little bit sort of relevant points. In, in sort of painted in the worst light possible, a lot of brands hopefully see their like e-commerce website is like an ATM machine. Like it's just this machine that they don't have to man with a human being and that, you know, people walk up to it and make sales. I don't know where they come from the internet, but uh, as long as they go there, they're going to see something and maybe buy it and they just have to wake up and see new orders and then make them. That, that's not exactly how it worked out, but that was sort of this sort of naive hope, right? Look, you want to understand business, follow the money. It's a business. <laughs> so, Always think, and I'm and I'm amazed speaking with a lot of students. I always give time to students because I think they're sacred. But, you are the teacher. But I always I'm always amazed or amused to see how naive people have when they stick to the product. And and you always have to remember them. Look, it's a business. Just follow the money. This is what business is about. So understand. Let's let's try to understand to change the 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 the, the lecture of what's happening. If brands today wants to go direct to consumer, it's not a coincidence. When a brand sells at the same price to the end consumer as before through the traditional distribution network, they have three to 400% more profit. And here I am not talking about 20% growth. I'm talking about three to 400% profit increase, which is enormous. And in terms, in times of crisis, and this is exactly what you said before. So how do the industry deal now with the decrease of, of quantities? It's, it, it's a parameter. If quantity degree, you have to increase the margin. Where is the margin? How do you make margin in watches? You make the margin between the differential of what you pay and what you sell. Okay. But what you sell to whom? Because when you sell to the traditional network, your ways to increase margin is to reduce the production cost. It's been long that we have optimized this. You can increase the price, but it's very, very difficult in terms of crisis to increase prices. It's like a suicide. Or you look at the plate of the intermediaries and say, wow, there is a big stack here that allows me, instead of, instead of earning, let's say, uh, instead of earning out of $1,000, 140 which is probably what the brands could earn on a Swiss-made watch, etc., you can 
you can recover the 650 of the intermediaries. So you go up to, let's say, more, more than 700 something. So you multiply your turnover by four, your, your profit by four. And, and this is exactly what's happening today. You know, name don't come up in history just for by coincidence. If everybody's speaking since two, three years about direct-to-consumer, D2C, B2C, omni-channels and all these things, it's, it's sim symptomatic of, of a tendency, of a trend of brands willing to get over the intermediaries margin so that they can recover it. But we, we have that dilemma is that by doing so, we're messing up with the main revenue stream, which is still the intermediaries. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch store. Right now, the Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Yes. And, and again, I think that what's so important is, again, look at some of the, the elements of this that aren't as sort of abstract and more practical. We talk about marketing all the time. And let's go back sort of before internet distribution. A watch was sold at a department store. Now, what would happen is that department store, using the margin that they would make per sale, would invest in local marketing to its its region. So a department store in a city in, in, in America would put out ads saying, hey, we've got these Tag Heuer watches. They're really nice. You, there's an, you know, it's, it's the holiday season. Come check them out. And you go and you see and you get a little discount. And you, you wouldn't have even gone into the store if it wasn't for that department store marketing in the first place and then creating that relationship with the, with the consumer you know, over a period of years, sometimes a lifetime, to get them comfortable to buy something mm -hmm. that high end in their store. So yes, there was a big margin that went to this, this retailer, but they did a lot of work. They did a lot and, of work. And that's very important because yeah. I'm a big defender of, of retailers. And that big margin, many times when I say this, like two-thirds goes into the distribution, people say, oh, they're taking too much money. No. Imagine you and I have the community, whenever you want to go to a store and there's someone waiting for you for years, Prepared, shaved, makeup, uh, local, the, the, the place is cooled or heaten. And they have millions of stock watches in stock sleeping in the windows waiting for you to take that decision. That immobilization costs a lot of money. And trust me, the 50% that a retailer usually takes is well-deserved. I'm, I'm not blaming at all the retailers. I think, you know, they work hard for this and they're not that rich. They are under constant pressure they take all the risk by purchasing the watches so i'm not i'm not saying they're taking too much it's just that they open the panama channel they open a new route that allows watch brands to sell directly to the end consumers and and here is the problem is that you know i was working before working in the watch industry i was working the press i was selling advertising on a newspaper paper 
newspaper. Um, and that, that advertising, for instance, I was selling, I don't know how you say in English, bondo, batpash, you know, those, those landscape uh, advertising uh, or horizontal advertising you see on the, on the bottom of, of a page. Okay. Okay. Yeah, not something Half page like ad or whatever. And we, as our humans, yeah. are always reacting the same thing. We try to project something new to compare something new with what we know. So when we discovered digital and marketing was hidden by by digital, the first thing we do is to copy in the next paradigm what we know from the current paradigm. So we took exactly the same ad. And instead of putting it on paper, we put it on a, on, a, on a screen. And this was the banner. So the banner is the expression of what we know from the, the, the good old marketing ways to make advertising in newspaper. And we do the same exactly on the screen. But you and I know 20 years later that digital marketing is not just about banner. Banner is a cream. You have about a lot of things. It's about having a conversation with an entirely different audience. It's a, it's an ongoing effort. I mean, it's it's a whole no, it's a whole it, other it, arm it, of the business. It's it's it, it it's a cream that came on the body, inside the body, and that changed the DNA of uh, the, the the DNA of the of the of the body. So it has completely changed the relation a brand has with its own computer when it comes to a business relation, a marketing relation. And this is exactly what happens now when digital hits distribution. Brands react exactly the same thing. They take the brick and mortar store and they upload it on the screen and expect the people to find exactly the same thing. And now what I see is that we make 3D stores on the screen and this is exactly projecting the good old brick and mortar way to sell pieces that, that we know. But forget it. And this is where... Four years ago, knowing that anyway we would find at a crossroad, find ourselves at a crossroad between digital and 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 and, uh, and uh, physical sales, that I was thinking, okay, this would happen because if there is 300% more profit to make, trust me, brands will do it. But what's next? So you're, so you're saying that that it was going to be inevitable, exactly, that a lot of brands are going to move online and that. With that inevitability, need came a need for strategy and ways to do it. Because even though the economics were moving in the direction of guys, you want to stay in business, you got to sell online because you need more profit to survive. But with that came an entire lack of knowing how to do that. Because as you know, selling selling anything online to consumers it's, might look easy, but is not easy. It's a different business. You're not selling to the same customers, and brands are not are not ready. To, to you know to get the hit of speaking to thousands of customers because they they are the king so the king decides and and usually brands when working with distributors it's it's a balanced uh, partnership that we have and where nobody's really the king so it's a completely different business but but here is the problem is that as we said the two models have good and bad part in terms of UX and profitability or margin now that's where Four years ago, I came to the conclusion that we should start speaking about digital. I was feeling pretty lonely four years ago, less lately. But, but here is the problem, is that now all marketing gurus are speaking about digital, but they, 
In America, we hate that word. It just does not sound right in our mind. We get it, a combination of physical and digital, but we just call that modern living now. Correct. But still, I think it's interesting <laughs> because, because the way we consider it is elevating the physical model uh, through digital activation or, or gimmicks. So it's applying an extra layer of of digital interaction with the, with the end consumer, usually a marketing layer, for uh, to in order to improve the, the the user experience in the store itself. Now my my point is that we should think reverse. Digital is the new road, and we should bring back emotion and physical interaction in a sale that will be digital. And this is where I started my own concept or or reflection or how do you call it uh, thinking about how we could find or apply the digital digital concept in the watch industry and I, and I here comes the merger of teacher and activist exactly so i've really given a, a deep thought of it for at least one or two years and i've and i've tried like like in money Hayes, you know the professor i've I really investigated any angle that would invalidate my my theory and my approach and I came to something which I think was viable. So I, I went back to the brands again and said, look, guys, I thought about something. Why don't we try? And, and again, people say, look, it, it looks cool, but we don't really understand what you're speaking about and we're not really interested. And this is where I was a bit stubborn. I said, you know what? I'm going to try myself. So I needed a watch and I decided to create my own watch. I'm not speaking about brand here because I didn't really consider it as a brand. Well, you made a brand. Uh, no, it seems it is, and and uh, and you made a brand. So you you had you basically had this idea that you kept shopping around from brand to brand, and like fools, they kept, you know, basically turning you down because they couldn't they couldn't see the vision, and then you're like, screw it, I'm just going to do it myself and just prove through example that that's it works. precisely the word I use. <laughs> screw it, <laughs> and uh, and I said, look, let let me do something. So I I created a watch. Uh, which I think is 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 quite well. I, I call out to all my friends here in Switzerland in the watch industry, and another friend that was working for decades in uh, in Hong Kong for the watch industry for the same Swiss watch industry, uh, and uh, and and I produced a watch that for me was very interesting because it offers a huge data between value and perceived value uh, between between yeah perceived value and 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 the quality you have in hands which is outstanding. And I just, you know, said, okay, let, let me try that experience. And I launched it on LinkedIn with a few posts. And I was amazed, you know, people would wire money to my bank account. I'm an honest person. So of course they were very happy in the end because they got a beautiful watch. And, and this is how my, my watch concept was launched, not with the aim of launching a brand, but just to say like, guys, let, let's check if this works, I'm going to do it. And then we all see if it works. And it, and it works way beyond my expectations to the point that I had yeah, to take an office, create a company. I, so, so you're, yeah, so again, your concept, you, you started a brand as a proof of concept to show that your business model worked, but then the brand actually started to do well and you're on to your, I don't know, third or fourth watch at this point, maybe more. Um, where now? Where does your where does your priority lie right now? Do you want to grow the brand, or do you still have this idea where 
you want to start to work with other brands because at some point you're just not going to have time to do both. You know, it's sort of interesting to ask yourself, you know, where does your where does your journey take you now? Well, it's it's even worse than that. Uh, what I had in mind is an ecosystem. Look, you shouldn't build taxi today. You have to invert invent Uber and. <laughs> And I think, you know, if just focusing on the watch itself would be wrong. But, you know, when, 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 you, when you have a child, you have to take care of it. So, yes, I've hired brand managers and, and we are continuing the, 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 the history. This is why I call it chapter. The chapter one was the first one. We had a chapter two, which was more lady with, uh, with lab-grown diamonds. And now we have the chapter three, which is a Swiss-made watch. And of course, we'll continue and, and create and push this brand. But at the same time, I have created an ecosystem, an app, a web-based app that codifies my vision. And why did I have to create this app is because the way I'm doing it doesn't exist. You, you know, people sometimes tell me, yeah, and especially on the blogs, which, which you know, where people are pretty nasty, they say, look, first your brand name sucks and then... Uh, and then uh, it's just a, a pyramidal thing, it's MLM, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not. It's just because you haven't taken time to really look into it. You know, I, I'm fascinated. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging concept, though. It's taken us more it, than a few does. conversations uh, to really allow me to wrap my mind around it. I was it, you know? unable to explain it less than one hour. I'm doing great efforts not to explain because it has so much impact on so many things and it solves so many equations at the same time for brands, for retail industry, et cetera, that I'm, I have tried to, to, to make this, to put this in a big equation. So you have to read the equation. It takes time. It's true. And, and from the outside, people would just say, whoa, that's pyramidal, but it's not. It, it's, 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 you know, it's like if you say that book is exactly the same as the other because it has the same 26 letters. It's just the way you put letters together that create a word, a sentence, and a, and a meaning of the book. Wait. You have, okay, so here's the thing. I, I'm sort of been in the center of this because I've written about the brand, the models, and the marketplace, and I've seen a lot of the reactions. And yes, a lot of them are a misunderstanding of what you're doing. But, you know, let's, you're, you're creating, you're not just creating sort of a new store concept. You're almost like a fantasy author creating like a new little universe. And you're really asking people within a few seconds to truly put themselves in this world and understand its parameters because you build a combination between a store and a community uh, and a way of launching something and even a way of, uh, for some people to make money. You've essentially tried to recruit, you know, normal people in the sense as sort of like influencers because that's a big part of the economy. You're, you're leveraging this core idea that people buy watches from their friends, which is true. Yeah. And you see, it all comes from rethinking the way we should be selling watches. See, marketing has made its circular revolution. Marketing is, is, is circular. That's why we speak about the 360 degrees of marketing. It's marketing. It's customer-centric. So if you are at the center, then there is something circular around you. Whereas in sales, we're still using the same good old uh, recipe from centuries, which is totally linear. This is why we speak about end consumer. End is, is the end station. It stops there. So the, 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 the process of selling is totally linear. It's a brand, then it's a tube, which are the intermediaries. And then at the end, there is the end consumer stop period. But I don't think you and I as customers are the end. I think we are central. And I've tried to codify this and really, truly, and not just as a marketing statement, blah, blah. 
as I usually hear, to really put the, the customer in the center. And, and what, what does it take if you, as a customer, are really centered? Look, funnily, some people criticize my new way of selling, but they cope and they're very happy with the good old traditional way. But what is the good old traditional way, Aria? You never interact with the brand. The brand doesn't know you, doesn't really care about you. They just say it on the marketing, but exactly what, what do they do for you? Nothing. They, they sell you products. You go on locked website. It's, it's, it's just a museum where you can see things through the windows. You see pictures which are photoshopped. It's not really reflecting the reality. And the only interaction people speaking about the brand are people that have been paid to tell you that they love the product, but they have been paid for that. You, will you marry with someone that tells you that he or she loves you just because you pay them? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well that's, that's isn't romance saying that, but in a way that's confusing. <laughs> because we think it's okay. Those people telling me that they love the watch has been paid to tell me this. I mean, I do very much more trust a friend when he, she has paid for the watch. I'm not paying my, 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 my people to say that they like the watch. It's reverse with all respect. Right. But this is, this is the thing you are making a business model out of the very fragile ecosystem, which is what I call the sort of friend recommendation engine and the influencer economy and all that has co-opted the psychology behind this. And the idea is in the world with so many options and the inability to tell the difference between, you know, a true or a false article online, the sort of fake news problem. Who can you trust? You can trust your friends. How do you know who your friends are? Well, your friends are your actual family and people you know around you or people that seem to talk and think like you. And so there are professionals out there that are des- that are designing their entire marketability to sound and act like your friend. Now, some of them really are your friend. And many of them are not your friend. They are they are mercenary friends. Well, they are look, what I call opinion mercenaries. What, what is the customer journey today? You go on the brand website because you want to get the official information, but then you go online to search for the product. And this is why and where I respect you a lot, Ariel, because you're independent. But this is this is part of as well of, of the conversation you and I have of sometimes you are a bit disappointed if not upset because some brands are not sharing information with you because they cannot control you and and, and there i really much you know uh congratulate you for this because you're in an independent media but you see the consequences of being independent so people and this is why they like to come on a blog to watch for instance because they get true information there is no bullshit there is no way uh, i can make you say something if you don't believe in it well thank you but I'm a consumer first and foremost. You know, I'm trying to be that extra knowledgeable friend. You know, all the people out there that like watches but have busy lives, they can't they can't keep up like me. I'm there to be like the the super watch buddy that when you need information, you can go to me because I'll tell it to you like it is. That's the brand that I've built around a blog to watch. We, you know, that that's a working model. So the just like, you know, with your some of the, the frustrations you've had with other watch brands. Their, their historic considerations about control destroy these new models. And so the idea is they need to, to incorporate this sort of risk of working uh, with you know, people like me. And, and they information. Have, not, there's no risk. That's the thing. Yes, they're worried. But what's the risk? Oh, no, you lose control of information. And then what is the big consequences only, other than you not having control? Ex- very expensive survey to see what the customers 
think about their product. Just go online. <laughs> and then you see what they really think about your product. That, that's the thing. You're right. The Swiss have an obsession with control. Totally get that. No arguments there. But going back to what I just said, what are the consequences? When you lose control over how someone talks about your brand, I don't understand what you're so worried about. If, if people like it and they want to have an organic conversation about it, go with the flow. That's what's called listening to the consumer. When you try to control the conversation, you're essentially saying, this is who should buy from me and only this person. That doesn't work for anyone. Look, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the effects. Of course, I'm human. I'm touched when I, when I saw, for instance, some comments on your blog over my brand names with people saying that brand name sucks. Okay, it's true. <laughs> On purpose, I have created... Okay, one that, out of 100 people is going to hate you. It's like a law of physics, big deal. Yeah, but 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 I'm so proud of my brand name. And if people would take the time to understand, they would understand that, in fact, it's an amazing brand name. But then what does it tell me? I have that, Thomas, you have to explain it better. You fail in, in making people understand why it doesn't suck, but why it's good. So there, it, it's it's a very good... And I think somehow those people could be good if they, they maybe would be a bit a bit less nasty, but still this is this is free uh, free speech. It's okay. But then it, it's just a mirror for me to say, look, where did I fail? And I think this is good in the man, intimately. But the thing, but yes, you're right. But you're you're also approaching it too much like a human because again, and you you know this because you had a beginning in media. You can't please everyone. It is physically impossible. It's like against our species' DNA to all agree on something. We have to have some type of rebelliousness. One, one to 10% of our people need to rebel so that we don't get stuck in, in sort of this ongoing perpetual decision-making. Our species, in order to adapt, has to change all the time. You know what Gandhi said? First, they will ignore you, then they will laugh at you, then they will fight you, and then you win. <laughs> so do you, are you at the fighting stage now? You'd be like, you don't like my name. I'm going to fight you to prove it's a good name. <laughs> well, I'm planning, by the way, to make a, to make a, a podcast on, on explaining. And it takes me 30 minutes to explain. And, and I pretend and beyond pretending, I, I assume I can explain the whole watch business model through my brand name. And it's pretty funny uh, so that you understand all the problematic the watch industry has today. But still, this is, you know, going back to, to, to what we were saying before, Ariel. Ultimately, we are facing a huge paradigm shift where brands need to find the, the, the road between that physical and, and digital interaction. And we have to accept and admit that it will be a digitalized world, but we have to bring back emotion and physical interaction within that, 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 that sense of purchasing. This is what I explore. I'm very happy, and this is why uh, I'm sharing everything, for instance, on my LinkedIn profile, even my turnover, because I consider it as an experience. And I hope people understand and even help me think, and, and smarter people than me would, would help me improve my, my model, because this is something that together we should be working on and solving that question because it goes way beyond my own selfish project. I think it's an industry that finds itself at a crossroad that has to find new solutions. And this is way greater than me and, and anyone else. It's something that we should build together. Not everyone understood in which spirit I am, but yes, I'm from- It's for the, it's for the long-term health and maintenance of a Swiss watch industry. That's why he does it. 
We're about out of time, so thank you so much, Thomas. The thank website uh, is the brand version of Thomas Bayad, and the way it's spelled is B-A-1-1-1-O-D.com. Uh, the Chapter 3 watch, the first Swiss-made one, is coming out soon. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Superlative. As always, a great pleasure. Thanks for thanks for recording, and, and, and thanks to your audience for taking the time to listen to us. See you next time, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?